welcome to the very first edition of For the Curious. As promised, I will explain why I decided on the name change from the Weekly Intellectual to For the Curious. First of all, I'd just like to say that I've had a very busy summer. COVID-19 has derailed a lot of people's well-laid and well-intentioned plans, and I'm no exception. That being said, the weekly part of the Weekly Intellectual was a decided challenge to myself to release a new episode each week, starting back in April. I did that for a few weeks, but right around that time, my day job was very much paused, with a few Zoom calls here and there and not much else going on. It wasn't long into the summer, however, and as that job started picking back up, that I realized it was an impractical goal for myself to release an episode each week, at least for that time. I also began to realize that the intellectual phrasing of the podcast title might equally be a misnomer. It implies that each episode is curated by an expert, which it is not. Instead, I'm a curious researcher on the topics I discuss, more so than an intellectual. I want to know more about the world around me, and I hope to use this podcast as a creative outlet in doing so, and to spark further conversation on the topics. I'm no expert in these fields. I am enrolling in Harvard Extension School this fall for my master's degree in religion, but so far I just have a bachelor's degree in individualized studies from New Mexico State University, class of 2018. With that disclaimer out of the way, welcome to For the Curious. I hope you came to this podcast curious, and I hope you leave the same. Barack Obama was last seen by a major TV audience a few months ago, during the airing of director Jason Hare's The Last Dance. It is a documentary chronicling the incredible run of the Chicago Bulls in the 1990s. Their six championships the drama in between, and especially the rise of global icon Michael Jordan. Obama appears on screen in the very first episode of the podcast and is referred to as former Chicago resident. Outcries went out about this online, with many saying that the title didn't show enough respect to the 44th president of the United States. But he was, in fact, a former Chicago resident, and appeared in the documentary to discuss his perspective on being a Chicago resident during the Bulls' glorious run. Regardless, a few episodes later, he was back with the title, President Barack Obama. In that first episode, Obama says he was too poor to afford Chicago Bulls tickets to see Michael Jordan in person, but that the man's aura, Jordan's, was felt throughout the city regardless. The next time Obama appears in the doc, he is discussing Jordan's controversial decision to not openly support black Democrat Harvey Gantt in the 1990 U.S. Senate race in Jordan's home state of North Carolina. Michael Jordan was never politically vocal during his playing career, in contrast to many of today's top athletes. Jordan made the comment at the time, quote, Republicans buy sneakers too. To this day, he insists that the comment was made in jest, and won't apologize for it. For Obama's part, he was a community organizer in Chicago during the Jordan years, especially working to get the black vote heard and registered. 
In the documentary comments, he remembers being somewhat disappointed by Jordan's stance, who at the time had the loudest voice not just in Chicago, but perhaps in the whole United States at that point. The phenomenon of race is inextricably linked to Obama's life and to his two terms as United States president. He was born to a black Kenyan father and a white Kansas mother in 1961. As a side note, Despite vocal skepticism from the likes of Rush Limbaugh and Donald Trump himself in the late 2000s, Obama was indeed born in Honolulu, Hawaii. Details of his upbringing uh, we will go into shortly. But race itself is as much a hot-button issue right now in in the United States as there can be a hot button issue, rivaled perhaps only by the global COVID pandemic. The firestorm of national protests still happening, currently centered in Portland, Oregon, began on May 25th with the phone camera recorded killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Police brutality has since been highlighted, with some calling to defund the police entirely, others pointing to the fact that very few black men are killed on average by police on a yearly basis. The other side then counters that there are far less black citizens living in the United States, so that proportionally the arrests, searches, and violence from policemen are still greatly unjust and disproportionate. This is what is referred to as systemic racism, at least one part of it. Obama has given voice to these incidents in his post-presidency, most recently with the passing of civil rights giant John Lewis on July 17th, Obama led the online tributes to the man's life. Race is in the forefront of the United States right now, and few seem to be still outright denying that it is an issue. As Obama himself stated on page 243 of his 2006 book, The Audacity of Hope, quote, Unless you live in a state without many black residents, I think you'll agree something's amiss. Just one more example of the changes going on in the country right now. As a result of the protests, the NFL team in Washington, D.C. recently retired their long-held name Redskins on July 13th. And one more example, actually. Uh, The NBA is allowing players to wear Black Lives Matter slogans on the backs of their jerseys when they resume play at the end of this month. These societal elements could be discussed in much greater detail, and perhaps they will be in future conversations on points of intersection. But for these episodes on this podcast, we will focus primarily on the life, rise, and presidency of Barack Obama. But, as mentioned, race will consistently play a role in that analysis. Before we dive in, I want to give another quick disclaimer. This regarding my personal perspective. I am a 24-year-old white male from northern Colorado what has been deemed Vanilla Valley by some. And as you can tell, it is one of those states without many black residents. I was raised in a heavily conservative environment and was influenced to vilify the Democratic Barack Obama for several reasons, which we will get into later, if not in this episode, uh, down the road. Some say that I shouldn't have to give such a disclaimer about my own personal perspective, but I myself beg to differ. I'm not trying to be politically correct for its own sake, 
but I do believe that where we come from matters. My voice matters for different reasons than someone who was raised in Harlem or in Honolulu. Where I come from is not the only thing that defines my voice. My education, critical thinking skills, and ability, ability to listen empathically do so as well, or lack thereof in any category. But let's not pretend that we are isolated or unbiased as human beings. We have a tendency to group things together based on our experience, for better or worse. The worst type of grouping that we make is often us versus them. Robert Sapolsky outlines this biological tendency in his 2017 book, Behave, The Biology of Humans at Our Best and Worst. We create heroes and villains in our minds, and most often put ourselves in the former category. It is fairly inevitable, again, at the biological level, but the least we can do is to identify this tendency and to attempt to overcome it. Why am I bringing this up in a podcast about Obama? Well, for one, because the man was able to identify, especially early in his political career, the false binary between Republican and Democrat. We need not hate the other side. Instead, Obama pointed to many of the similarities between the two parties, as other politicians have. But I hope that this particular look at Obama's life and presidency is helpful to Republicans, Democrats, and independents alike. Biases exist. Let's try to minimize them in this discussion. My friend Steve, a black man who served in the United States Army for 29 years and is now a consultant and substitute teacher, gave so far the best talk that I've heard regarding our current national race predicament. To an organizational board, he started by telling a few stories about times in his life when he's experienced prejudice personally. He wanted to let those living in the northern Colorado area know that racism is still alive and alive in our community. After these stories, he went on to give a suggestion of where to start in undoing such racism. He said, quote, we all must educate ourselves on these issues. Perhaps in learning, we may find some healing. In education, we may gain some tools, at least to begin the process. Barack Obama's parents were separated when he was four years old. He had only one face-to-face interaction with his biological father, Barack Sr., after that and only heard whispers of what the man was like before his death at 46 years old in 1982. The younger Brock was 21 years old at that time. In the years between his own birth and his father's death, Obama and his mother moved from Hawaii to Indonesia with his mother's second husband. Obama alternated between a Catholic school and a Muslim madrasa. His mother was not herself strictly religious, and these decisions were made solely with the intent to give Obama the best education that he could get. Indonesia was going through political instabilities at the time, though, and at age 10, Obama was sent back to Hawaii to live with his grandparents. It was then, going into his early teen years, that the young Obama began to see race as an issue to be grappled with. He noticed that he was not like everyone around him in different ways, and also that those in textbooks and on TV shows rarely looked like him. 
He sensed a discrepancy between the races, but said of his grandparents, from page 18 of his 1995 book, Dreams from My Father, which we will continue to explore, that, quote, like most Americans, like most white Americans at the time, they had never really given black people much thought. Surely, of course, they had to give some thought on the topic when their own daughter decided to, decided to marry a Kenyan man, uh, but we will move on. The younger Obama began to be angry toward white people and to spend time with black social revolutionary types. By the time he was attending the liberal arts Occidental School in Los Angeles, he was heavily influenced by the autobiography of Malcolm X. Obama transferred to Columbia College in New York for his final two years of undergrad and graduated with a degree in political science. It was during this time in New York that he had the following reflection about his mixed heritage. Quote, I look down now at the abandoned New York street. Did Marcus know where he belonged? Did any of us? Where were the fathers, the uncles, and grandfathers who could help explain the gash in our hearts? Where were the healers who might help us rescue meaning from defeat? They were gone, vanished, swallowed up by time. Only their cloudy images remained, and their once-a-year letters full of dime-store advice. That from page 118 of Dreams from My Father. The last line refers to the cloudy image of his own father, whose letters he indeed received about once a year. Soon after, he would be gone from his son's life forever, following a deadly automobile accident. Upon graduation, Obama entered the business sector. He made a lot more money than he was used to during, the, during that time, but felt called or pulled towards something else. Soon it was on his mind to become a community organizer. He quit his job and moved to Chicago, but had trouble finding a job in his desired field. When he finally did find that job, the pay cut was immense. He certainly could not buy tickets to see Jordan and the Bulls. But he felt fulfilled in the role, galvanizing black voters toward action in improving their communities of Roseland and Altgeld Gardens on the south side of Chicago. He realized that, quote, communities had to be created, fought for, tended like gardens. That from page 134. The most striking passage from Obama's first book during this part of his life came after an incident when a black coworker of his wore colored contacts, which made her eyes blue. He asked her why she had done it, why she wanted to look more white. Afterward, he reflected with the following from page 192. Quote, I handled the moment badly, I told myself. Made her feel ashamed of a small vanity in a life that could afford few vanities. I realized that a part of me expected her and the other leaders to possess some sort of immunity from the onslaught of images that feed every American's insecurities. The slender models in the fashion magazines, the square-jawed men in fast cars, images to which I myself was, vul was vulnerable and from which I had sought protection. When I mentioned the incident to a black woman friend of mine, she, she stated the issue more bluntly. What are you surprised about, my friend said impatiently, that black people still hate themselves? This was the first time reading Obama's early memoir that I really felt the discrepancy between my experience and his. 
Growing up, those images of the ideal were not too far from my own reflection in the mirror. I have blue eyes and sandy blonde hair. I am white, but can tan in the sun. I was never told to look differently if I wanted to be attractive to people, except maybe when I was encouraged to lift weights and get tattoos to enhance my image, both of which I did probably mainly for the purpose of impressing others. But I didn't have to change my skin or my eye color or other major parts of my identity to be valued by myself or the society or others. The scene mentioned by Obama was reminiscent, or reminded me at least, of one from Malcolm X's autobiography, previously mentioned to have influenced Obama. When Malcolm finally realizes he's been straightening his natural, nappy hair for the purpose of looking more white, he stops, of course, and encourages his black readers to do the same. He tells them not to be ashamed of what they were born with. Perhaps this is the dynamic that Kendrick Lamar speaks to in his 2014 single, I fighting against the temptation to pity oneself based on skin color or even societal standing. But Obama saw no help or empathy coming from those outside his own community. From page 193, quote, There seemed no reason to expect that white people would look at our private struggles as a mirror into their own souls, rather than yet more evidence of black pathology. The accusation here is stark. Those more privileged do not see themselves and those less privileged. They do not see another human, but only someone black, someone disparately different. There are complex forces at play when it comes to race. Slavery's ugly head still rears itself in our modern psyche. We as a society cannot fully extricate ourselves from its consequences, at least not yet. The ideal would be to see race as a social construction it is, rather than as any kind of biological reality beyond more or less melanin in the skin. But there's too much history behind it now, too much identity wrapped up in it, to simply do away with race in the United States or abroad. There were, after all, hundreds of years of slavery and slavery-type restrictions following. Michelle Obama in her best-selling memoir, Becoming, told a story of Barack being lost in deep thought while they were together. She asked him what was on his mind, expecting him to say that it was her beauty, or her intellect, or his love for her that he was so preoccupied with. Instead, he replied that he was pondering the plight of the black man in the United States and what he could do about it. And it does take pondering. No simple fixes to race relations, await this country. A couple more major developments in Obama's life are described in Dreams from My Father. First, he works with many local churches, and seeds of belief are planted in his own life. He is still a skeptic, who was of course raised to be irreligious, but readers can begin to see in him the start of a developing faith, one described in greater detail in the later Audacity of Hope. Second, he enrolls in Harvard Law School. This decision is met with some pushback from those in his community who are happy for him, but also see the possibility of his abandoning them in their own continuing struggles. Third, shortly before beginning his law program at Harvard, he takes a trip to Kenya to spend an extended amount of time with, ex- with family there. 
he learns much more about his departed father and about his own ancestral roots. The last part of this book, of the book, is taken up with this trip, and it is worth a read. Obama continues struggle with his personal identity and with the broader societal implications of global race relations. A couple notable observations from pages 407 and 414, respectively. Quote, He would say that the white man was always improving himself, whereas the African was suspicious of anything new. And, quote, This pleased Onyango, for to him knowledge was the source of all the white man's power, and he wanted to make sure that his son was as educated as any white man. Both of these quotes speak to the idea that knowledge leads to power, but do not go into explicit detail of how such power can be held against others. Again, we don't have time to go into that sufficiently here, but just look at the history of slavery, sharecropping, and Jim Crow for a more thorough look at how knowledge acquisition was suppressed for hundreds of years in the United States. See Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass as an example of what happens when such knowledge is unleashed and unchained. I will end and wrap up the first part of this analysis of Obama's life with the following quotation from page 437 in the epilogue of Dreams from My Father. In it, Obama describes his postgraduate work as a lawyer in Chicago with its own set of moral struggles. Quote, The study of law can be disappointing at times, a sort of glorified accounting that serves to regulate the affairs of those who have power. But the law is also memory. The law also records a long-running conversation, a nation arguing with its conscience. Part two of this analysis will be coming soon. Hopefully, soon means sooner than it took for this first part to come out. Talk to you then.